For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, this is like the old days when you were uh, a world traveler. You're currently in New York City, I believe. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm visiting my parents. The first time I've left Los Angeles in, since you know the beginning of March. How's the plane? I, you know, it, the crazy thing, right, is you, you know, you get on, you get into the airport, and every single human is wearing a mask and being very careful. And you get on the plane, everybody's wearing a mask, and people are cleaning their seats with you know wipes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and it does make you feel a little bit better. It also makes you think like. Well, people clearly are able of doing this, you know, like, like why aren't yeah. people doing this, you know, everywhere we'd have licked this thing by now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had a, you know, one of those, my sister-in-law's a, a, an ER nurse. So shout out to her, Teresa. Um, and so she gave me these N95 masks, you know, that the healthcare yeah, workers yeah. wear. And those are good. You, you, you feel like I didn't take that thing off for like seven hours and you, you feel like nothing's getting through that thing. I hope at least. That's great. Well, uh, it's good to see you. I got to tell you, like today is one of the first days that my throat hurts from this Ugh, stupid yeah. smoke here in Los Angeles. So uh, you were uh, you were smart to escape. But we got a great show today. So we're going to talk about these uh, peace agreements in quotes between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain that were signed at the White House today. We'll talk about the recently started Afghan Taliban U.S. peace talks happening in Qatar. Some disturbing allegations from a whistleblower at the Department of Homeland Security that did not get enough coverage given how disturbing they are. Uh, We'll talk about what the U.S. needs to do globally to combat climate change so that I can breathe someday. Uh, The ongoing refugee crisis in Europe, an Iranian assassination plot, and some more great topics. And then our guest today is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall. We're going to talk to him about Russia, uh, the protests in Belarus, and how Biden should approach Russia if he wins. So stick around for that. A couple quick things for the show. Uh, we have an amazing newsletter here at Crooked Media. It's called What a Day. It's like the podcast. As we head into the home stretch of the election, if you're not subscribed, trust me, uh, it is worth it. It is written and curated by Crooked Media's own Sarah Lazarus, who is so funny and so smart. Our team curates it together. So go to crooked.com slash subscribe to check it out. Also, uh, do not miss today's episode of Missing America. Uh, ben is looking at the seemingly endless wars in the Middle East talking to two former political prisoners. Ben, it's like the White House timed these announcements yeah. today to to coincide with your show. It's serendipity. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, actually I was going to talk a little bit about it in the context of the the quote-unquote historic peace agreements. But because what we look at is the, the the we try to look at this differently. We 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 look at the intersection between the forever wars in the Middle East and the US support for autocrats because those things are interrelated and, and why the US has this mindset that it needs to support autocrats and it needs to fight forever wars. And we hear 
an extraordinary story. I, uh, people should tune in just for the story of Mohammed Sultan, who was a political prisoner in Egypt, was tortured, was recruited by ISIS in his prison cell because the Egyptian government was letting those ISIS recruiters roam the prisons because they wanted to radicalize the opposition. Uh, we hear, you know, Jason Resign's story of Iran. And then we hear from some great voices, Chris Murphy, Rokana, John Brennan, uh, about how to, how to end the forever wars uh, and how to change our mindset about the Middle East. So worth checking out for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of autocrats, we had a couple of the White House today, uh, besides the president. So the <laughs> leaders of Israel, uh, the United Arab Emirates in Bahrain, they all gather today with Trump at the White House. They're ostensibly there to sign a diplomatic agreement between Israel and the UAE, an agreement between Israel and Bahrain, and then some document that all three sign. Uh, but the timing is about trying to give Trump a political win before the election. Let's just be clear about why this is happening. Um, Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, they view Iran as their mortal enemy. They think Trump will let them do basically anything they want in service of stopping Iran. Uh, ben, you know, we talked about the UAE-Israel piece of this. We haven't talked about Bahrain. For those unfamiliar with Bahrain, and, and that's understandable, it's a tiny little archipelago in the Persian Gulf. Uh, the, the main island, which is like most of the landmass, uh, which is I think three times the size of Washington, D.C., is connected by a highway to Saudi Arabia. So the Saudis have a lot of control over their political affairs. Uh, it's a constitutional monarchy ruled by a, a Sunni royal family, despite having a Shia majority state. So they are especially paranoid about Iran or the Quds Force somehow toppling their government. Uh, I think of the million and a half people in Bahrain, half are immigrants. Uh, a lot of them do really backbreaking labor that is horribly unethical. Um, the U.S., you know, we have a major interest in Bahrain because the Navy's Fifth Fleet is headquarters there, along with the U.S. Navy Forces Central Command. So the Fifth Fleet is responsible for operations in the Gulf, the Red Sea, uh, parts of the Indian Ocean. You know, long story short, they got a lot of hardware uh, and they have a lot of responsibility for a region that's basically been at war for two decades. So, you know, we haven't seen this text yet, Ben, as of starting the recording, which is annoying. Um, the administration keeps trying to call this a Middle East peace deal, which is so dishonest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's usually, you know, referring to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Palestinians are completely left out of this discussion. Frankly, they feel abandoned by the Gulf Arab countries that used to advocate for their interests. So, Ben, you know, what's your take uh, on this deal and your response to people like Brett Stevens over the New York Times, uh, who argues that, you know, the conventional wisdom that solving the Israeli-Palestinian problem was the key to unlocking peace in the region has proven to be wrong. And that's what's needed now is what Brett calls, quote, an alliance of moderates and modernizers. Well, look, I, I, <laughs> the, you were right to focus <laughs> on the peace part. There's, there's no peace was made. Like there's no war right. was ended. No, one was at war. no conflict yeah. was concluded. Bahrain and the UAE were never at war with Israel and, and have been, you know, under the table friendly with Israel for some time now. It is a, a good thing that Israel now has two other Arab states that have agreed to normalize relations with them that will facilitate things like travel and trade. So that's good for, for Israel's greater inclusion, but there's no change to the, the wars in the region, no change to the autocracy in the region, and no change to the status of the Palestinians. So it's, it's really disingenuous to call this a peace agreement. And I don't, you know, the media's kind of gone, gone along with this. And yeah, Bahrain is a country of, of just over a million people here. So this is not, you know, it's, this is not the Camp David Accords. This is not Israel right. making peace with Egypt and Jordan, its neighbors, big 
important Arab countries that it had fought multiple wars with. This is Israel making normalization agreements with a couple of oil-rich autocrats, essentially, to help Trump before an election. And it's, it's just it's not as, as, as seismic a deal as all these people like Brett Stevens trying to dunk on everybody about it portray. And, and I think there's some troubling aspects to it as well. You know, there's a war that has been ongoing in Yemen for the last several years that should never have started with U.S. support, at least in the Obama administration, but Trump has escalated that support, that has killed over 100,000 people and, and tens of thousands more in a famine. The, the, none of these guys talked about that, even though they're the ones who've been in that war. Um, the Palestinians are still without a state and are, you know, still, you know, is Israel still building settlements. N- nothing is changing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so, this is about autocrats coming together to do each other favors, to do Trump a favor before his election, to do uh, Netanyahu a favor when Israel's on lockdown because of COVID again, uh, because of his mismanagement of COVID. Uh, and what's in it for the UAE and Bahrain? Well, they want Trump to win. And I think if, if Biden wins, I think they're hoping that this might you know, make it more difficult for a Biden administration to rethink the kind of blank check of support we've had to the Gulf. And then lastly, what are they united in? They're united in their antipathy and hatred for Iran. Um, and so they're they're just kind of, you know, formalizing what has been the status quo for over the last decade, which is that these governments, Israel and the Gulf countries, apply pressure on the United States to confront Iran and to tr- try to pr- pr- pursue a regime change policy in Iran, which I don't think is going to work. And, and I think the nuclear deal worked better. And uh, Iran, looking at this, is only increasing its nuclear program, right? So there's no peace made here. There's no resolution to the autocracy issues uh, that we talked about, too. Uh, and, and, but Trump has a big photo op that he's playing up to be something that I think is is not nearly as significant as he says, even if, you know, inside of this, okay, it's good that that Israel has two more countries that recognize it. Yeah, I mean, it is wild that Bibi Netanyahu jumped on a plane, uh, given that on Friday, Israel is going to go into a second nationwide lockdown because of a huge surge of COVID cases that is, I guess, threatening to overwhelm their healthcare system. That means schools, businesses, restaurants are going to close. Apparently, people are going to have to stay within 500 meters of their home. So it's a pretty serious lockdown. What do you make of the, the suggestion that, you know, if Bahrain is willing to cut this deal with uh, the Israelis, that means the Saudis tacitly approved it, which means they could be next, which I think a lot of people would see as a, a, a bigger deal given the size of the players. But, you know, there has been a suggestion in a lot of the reporting that Mohammed bin Salman is looking to do whatever he can to kind of uh, launder or expunge his murder uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist who was killed in Turkey two years ago. No, there, there's no question that this would not be happening if MBS had not, you know, Bahrain doesn't do anything without checking with MBS first. Um, and the UAE, too, has been in lockstep with MBS. But again, this just shows you the character of the people making these agreements. And, 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 and the, these are not people interested in peace, you know. There's something offensive about watching them use the language of peace as they wage this war in Yemen, as they repress their own people, um, as they are, frankly, you know, jonesing for the United States to be 
in a confrontation with Iran, that's what they're interested in. And, mm-hmm. you know, what what I hate is the way these are framed in the United States. It's framed like a reality show. Like, oh, Trump had a photo op that he called the Middle East peace deal with some of these leaders. But what about the people? What about the, the tens of thousands of people at risk of famine in Yemen? What about the Palestinians who don't have a state? What about the people living under repression in these countries? Bahrain is a, a majority Shia country where the Shia are essentially oppressed by a small Sunni minority. I mean, the people of the Middle East are absent from any of these conversations. Uh, and the, the conflicts, whether it's in Iraq or Syria or Yemen, are, are not at all resolved by this, never mind the Palestinians. And so I, I just hope that we don't continually fall for the idea that that this is some kind of optics show put on for, you know, an American audience yeah. in which, you know, the Arab leaders play a role of standing there in a signing ceremony. I didn't like it, by the way, when we had kind of these Middle East peace conferences in the Obama administration where everybody got to look like they were doing something and nothing got done. I, it was some of the more fr- you were there for those, Tommy. Yeah, those yeah. were frustrating moments uh, for, uh, you know, for me at the time and even more so in, in retrospect. So, like, let's just not, like, overhype this stuff. This is, again, the, the best thing you can say is two countries that Israel hadn't been at war with are normalizing ties, and that may open up some additional trade and people-to-people exchanges. The, the idea that these, you know, guys, are, they're the moderates and the modernizers, and that's what they've been saying about MBS, for you, you remember he was a modernizer, a reformer, yeah. and 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 asked Jamal Khashoggi like how much of a modernizer this guy is. Yeah. Um, so the other like you know major set of peace talks uh, are actually happening right next door to Bahrain in, in Qatar. So these are the long-awaited uh, direct talks between the Taliban. Uh, and representatives of the Afghan government. They are happening because back in February, the U.S. agreed to basically get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, or at least a timetable to do so. That deal uh, included a prisoner swap that exchanged 5,000 Taliban prisoners for 1,000 Afghan security forces being held by the Taliban. Uh, That exchange, it took months to actually line up. It held at the start of these direct talks, but eventually happened. Um, The talks have also been complicated by the fact that the Afghan government has been bitterly fighting ever since their disputed election last year. So, you know, a few thoughts, Ben. Um, First, you know, just because there are peace talks, it doesn't mean that there is peace in Afghanistan, right? I mean, there's a ceasefire between U.S. forces and the Taliban, but not between Afghan forces and the Taliban, and the Afghans are taking enormous casualties. Uh, Literally a week ago, 10 people in Kabul were killed by a roadside bomb that was targeting the vice president of Afghanistan. So they're going after senior officials who are a part of these uh, talks. Luckily, he survived. You know, second, I'm glad that the peace talks are happening. But I just want to be clear that, like, they are only politically possible because the U.S. agreed to remove our troops. And normally... That kind of decision would be demagogued by people like Lindsey Graham. Uh, if Obama was president, Fox News and the whole Republican Party would be accusing him of cutting and running uh, and talking about how he brokered a deal that allowed 5,000 Taliban guys out of, out of prison. Um, you know, like they'll say that, you know, they're going to do everything they can to stop this deal because the only acceptable withdrawal should be conditions based, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like to, to Trump's credit, he ignored those people. Um uh, but we should be clear that the Republican Party has been the real impediment to like peace talks generally. And then just lastly, like there's no guarantee of success and it's going to take an enormous amount of international support to help rebuild Afghanistan from what it is now. I mean, I would love to hear more about 
what we're doing as a country to pass the hat, help these people rebuild after like two decades of just unbelievable suffering. So I don't know, Ben, what'd you make uh, of the talk so far? What kinds of things are you looking for uh, in terms of like success? Well, the reality is ever since we cut our deal with the Taliban, you know, the United States cut our deal with the Taliban several months ago, things have gotten worse in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban has not stopped fighting and killing Afghan security forces, engaging in uh, brutal attacks, uh, you know, attack on a maternity ward, right? Um, so the, the question I've always had since that happened is, is, you know, even if you just think we should remove our troops, you don't have to, to cut a deal that in kind of empowers and elevates the Taliban on the way out. I mean, you prefer to have a deal in place between the Taliban and the Afghan government that is real and that gives you know the Afghan people a say and, and is not thrust upon the Afghans by you know Mike Pompeo and the Taliban. You know, um, and so what I look for is whether this is something that the Afghan government and the Afghan people genuinely seem to feel comfortable with that it assures you know that there, there'll be a, an end to the, the the fighting or at least a significant reduction in the fighting and some agreement about the country's future and again what's so uncomfortable watching all this tommy is that like it feels like all of the leverage of the u.s government is being brought to bear to generate kind of a series of photo ops um, before the election and mm -hmm. and i don't say that because i don't want trump to win the election which i obviously don't I say that because, like, you know, we saw this bizarre Serbia-Kosovo deal where they didn't even know what they were signing. It was like they've been, I mean, literally, the Serbian government went back on what they they had signed because they said they didn't know that they agreed right, to it. Right. And, and and you know, today we again we see this massive hype of the 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 Middle East piece of it, um, and then you see this, and and you can't make you wonder, you know, are is this a genuine effort or is this kind of a, an effort that is is pressuring? people to do things that they're not ready to do um, or that hasn't been fully baked to create a series of photo ops before an election that, you know, after the election won't have solved the problem. So what I, I, what I would hope is that the Afghans can sort this out on their own and that the Afghan government has a, a real voice and isn't just pressured into things by us. Um, what I worry about is that in our haste to create this photo op, we're basically, you know, potentially handing the country over to the Taliban. Yeah, I, I, I worry a lot about that as well, uh, but we'll keep an eye on these talks. So um, this story didn't get uh, a ton of pickup last week, Ben, because of the, the Woodward book and like all the other stuff going on. But I think it's actually a very big deal that we should talk about, which is uh, according to a whistleblower complaint released by the House Intelligence Committee, top officials at the Department of Homeland Security repeatedly forced subordinates to change intelligence assessments to match things Trump said or like generally not make him look bad. So... The complaint itself was filed by a guy named Brian Murphy, who used to head uh, DHS's intelligence and analysis department until he was let go because he um, collected intelligence on reporters with small little constitutional <laughs> yeah. issues. Or, yeah, yeah, but yeah. here are the specific allegations. So former DHS Secretary Nielsen uh, repeatedly and knowingly lied about the number of individuals with suspected links to terrorism who attempted to cross or did cross the southern border into the U.S., uh, specifically lied to Congress. Uh, and if this is true, this would be 
perjury. Acting Deputy DHS Secretary Ken Cuccinelli told Murphy, the whistleblower, to alter intelligence reports about Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras to make those countries appear safe, presumably so that Trump could force asylum seekers to go there, which is horribly unethical. Chad Wolf, your friend, Frat Chad, the acting DHS secretary, told Murphy to stop providing intelligence assessments about Russian interference and instead focus on China and Iran and their alleged interference efforts, if they exist. Uh, This was reportedly uh, relaying a demand from Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor. And Wolf and Cuccinelli told Murphy to downplay the threat from white supremacist groups and play up alleged threats from Antifa. So, you know, again, some people are questioning Murphy, the whistleblower's credibility, because he was demoted for collecting intel on reporters. But like, to me, the story feels a lot like the Atlantic piece about Trump denigrating the U.S. military in that the existing public record backs up the allegations, right? Like we know the administration lied repeatedly about threats at the southern border to justify the wall to try to scare voters before the midterms. We know that they had changed asylum policy to force migrants to first apply for asylum in Guatemala, El Salvador, in Honduras as a way to basically shut down all immigration, despite those countries being unsafe. And we know that the White House has played down Russian interference efforts uh, and tried to both sides it with China and Iran because Trump just can't handle hearing about Russian interference. So I don't know. This is like brazen lying and a manipulation of intelligence. Uh, the whistleblower complaint itself coincides with news that the intel community is no longer going to give in-person briefings to members of Congress on foreign election interference. So the moment we need this kind of information most, they are suppressing it. It's like it's just so brazen then. I don't even know what to say. Yeah, and you know this this matters to people. It should be a bigger story because this directly affects the safety of Americans because they're suppressing real information about dangerous threats to the American people, like the threat from white supremacy and from from white nationalist groups who we have seen kill Americans and harm Americans over the course of the last several years, right? And we saw it, uh, you know, in Wisconsin. We saw it at the Tree of Life Synagogue. We, yep. We've seen it, you know, in, in, in El Paso. I mean, this is a real problem. And not only are they not dealing with it, but they're actively suppressing the information that is because they find it politically inconvenient to them. In the same way that Russia's intervention in our election threatens the integrity and potential for a free and fair election in this country. It doesn't get more fundamental than than your potential safety in your community and the potential that a foreign power can dictate the outcome of our election. These are real things, right, that are being suppressed. And and in in their place, this idea that we're going to hype up you know, the, the caravans, I mean, we're, it's like we're back before the midterm election, you know, that they, they, they're being directed to hype threats at yep. our southern border to play into Trump's, uh, you know, view of this wall. And, and so you he- have here the, the, the full resources of the U.S. government, including the tip of the spear, the organization that is meant to protect Americans, being completely weaponized to create an alternative version of reality to suit Donald Trump's politics at the expense of the American people's security. That's a huge deal. And, and you know, nothing breaks through. But it does suggest that if, you know, Joe Biden wins, there's going to have to be a lot of work done on the wiring of the Department of Homeland Security. And I'm frankly skeptical that there's that it can be fully salvaged. Yeah, I am. I am increasingly with you on that one. The DHS is uh a broken place, you know, some might ask, yeah. why do they have their own intelligence agency within DHS? And I might say, great question. They probably yeah. shouldn't. Uh, it's ripe for abuse. Um, let's turn to climate change, Ben, because, you know, we're, we're several weeks into the state of California, literally being on fire. Uh, the amount of smoke 
you know, here in LA varies day to day, but I saw a report yesterday that clouds have made their way all the way to Maine. So that's great. I'm glad that like we could share this with you East Coast folks, what we're experiencing here. Um, I can barely talk today because it's so thick. Uh, Trump was in California yesterday uh, where his response to an urgent plea to follow the science and do something about climate change to help prevent the fires we're seeing was, quote, it'll start getting cooler. You just watch, end quote. So um, given that just unbelievable denialism, I wanted to quickly outline some of the contours of Joe Biden's climate plan because it's big and it's ambitious and it's a good plan. And it's something we should all be talking about and posting on social media and sharing with our friends as we try to get them to vote for Biden and not Trump. So the big goal is getting to net zero emissions by 2050. So that means like any carbon released into the atmosphere is offset by carbon taken out. To put that goal in perspective, uh, the U.S. Energy Information Administration estimates that the U.S. emitted 5.1 billion metric tons of energy-related carbon dioxide in 2017. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, some of this Biden wants to do through executive action or by using government procurement power to get 100% uh, clean energy vehicles or 100% efficient U.S. government buildings. But he also wants Congress to pass legislation to provide sort of an enforcement mechanism for these targets. So that's why winning the Senate and keeping the House is so important. He also wants to invest $400 billion in clean energy research. Now, the U.S., we're a huge piece of the CO2 problem. We're 15% we're of global emissions. So that obviously leaves the rest of the world for us to be able to actually tackle the problem fully. Um, to get at that, like the international peace, Biden has pledged to reenter the Paris Climate Accords uh, and then immediately try to renegotiate and raise those targets so that it, it reduces CO2 emissions even more. Ben, you were part of negotiating the original Paris Climate Accords. What do you think needs to happen diplomatically and internationally to actually tackle climate change while we still can? Yeah. And I, I have the same urgency you do, Tommy. Right before I left to come out here, I remember I saw my daughter, Chloe, you know, who's three, and, and she had a, you know, her face looked like it had a particular glow. And I, I thought, wow, you know, Chloe looks like she got some sun. And then I realized it was a reflection of the, the sky, you know. And, and then you're thinking, she's three. What is the world she's coming up in? There are going to yeah. be fires like this every year. You know, yep. this is going to get worse and worse. This is the biggest challenge to our country. To get to Paris, and this foreshadows what we have to do, so just very quickly, the way we got to Paris is the United States, particularly in the second Obama administration, did everything we could to reduce our emissions. So you had you know, every regulation we could pass, a lot of investments in clean energy. We started to turn around the ocean liner of our own economy to move in the direction of net zero. That gave us some leverage to go abroad and then make this the centerpiece of a lot of bilateral, multilateral relationships. So we're literally sitting there and getting China and India and Brazil and other countries to raise their own ambitions mm -hmm. in order to get into Paris. The important thing about Paris is Paris is supposed to be the floor. Nobody said that was the end of the work. That's the beginning. That's the architecture. This is the agreement within which we all do things. And every five years, there was always going to be the idea that we would get more ambitious, that countries would submit new plans every five years about what their commitments were, right? So that's coming up next year. So as you mentioned, the, the first thing Biden has to do is a major investment here in the United States along the lines of the Green New Deal to transition our economy to get to net zero through investments in renewable energy and energy efficiency. But then internationally, we have to take that and say, look, we're back. You know, we're in the agreement. We're doing more. We're raising our ambition. And then we have to go and work cooperatively with other countries to raise theirs. So China, 
you know, you've you've had some ambitious initiatives and emissions reduction targets in China, but China's building all this infrastructure in other countries that is not uh, carbon neutral in any way, that mm -hmm. is, you know, building coal plants. Like, they have to bring their international objectives in line with Paris. India needs to step up its game. Brazil needs to start protecting the Amazon rainforest instead of destroying it so there's something that can take the carbon out of the air. And so what is needed is a full-court diplomatic press from the Biden team to go to all these other countries to raise the collective ambition of Paris. And what are you trying to do? Because this can seem so amorphous to people. You're trying to basically rewire the global economy so that countries are, are increasingly not using fossil fuels and using clean sources of energy so that markets and investments no longer go in that direction because it looks like that's being phased out and all that money flows into clean energy technology and energy efficiency technology so that richer countries are helping poorer countries who are going to say, hey, you guys got to build coal plants when you're developing. Why can't we? We can say to them, well, we're going to help you seed a solar or wind energy infrastructure in your country. There's this kind of massive effort over the next decade to give humanity a fighting chance of dealing with it. If we don't start now, Climate change is already accelerating at what appears to be an exponential rate. Four more years of moving in the wrong direction, and and not only are we further behind, we, we just might lose the window to be able to affect this. Yep. So this has to be not just a leading domestic priority, this has to be the leading farm policy priority for every U.S. This is like the Cold War. Like this is, government has to be organized, foreign policy has to be organized, so that for this administration and the one after that and the one after that, that we can get this done internationally. And that means, by the way, we have to win the Senate so that you can pass legislation through Congress. And that means, by the way, you know, Tom Cotton or whatever climate deniers put up in 2024 can't win either. This is going to have to be sustained. Yeah, agreed. It's, it, it just could not be more urgent. Uh, I literally feel it every day when I step outside. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Let's talk about the European refugee crisis for a minute, Ben, because the Greek island of, of Lesbos has become a symbol of the EU's failure to deal with the continent's refugee crisis. Over the last five years, well over a million migrants have ended up in Greece. Uh, most were escaping conflicts like wars in Syria, Afghanistan, you know, Sudan, Somalia, Libya. Uh, but as governments across the EU went from welcoming to migrants to hostile, 
many of them uh, got trapped in what were supposed to be temporary camps on Greek islands. The most notorious of which uh, is the Moria camp in Lesbos, which was designed to temporarily house like two or 3,000 migrants, but at times had more than 20,000 asylum seekers living in these temporary shelters for months at a time. Uh, The conditions were horrible. They got even worse when COVID arrived to the point where a small group of residents started fires in protests uh, of lockdowns. And they basically burned down what has become, you know, Europe's largest refugee camp. So now an estimated 13,000 former residents of this camp are sleeping outdoors. And it is just a truly awful situation. Um, The migrants don't want the camp rebuilt. They want off the island. The residents of Lesbos, uh, some of whom were once nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2016 because people in fishing boats were saving so many migrants' lives as they were trying to cross the Aegean Sea from Turkey to Greece. They, those residents have now become incredibly angry about these camps. Uh, the political situation is awful. There's taken a hard right turn. So you know, Ben, there's a lot of pieces to the story. Like there's the conflicts displacing people and fueling the the migration crisis. There's the way far right parties have demagogued the issue uh, and gained support across Europe. But the one constant is just the suffering uh, of these people who have been driven out of their homes, uh, you know, by these sort of like post 9-11 uh, crisis. I think New York Times estimated at what, 37 million people who have been driven out by these post 9-11 crises. So it is really, really tough. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've heard from some people in this region, including Zarlash Halanzai, who we've had on this podcast, who has an NGO that works with refugees in this area, right? And, and what's happening is not only the, the deteriorating conditions of COVID, but as you alluded to, you know, you've got far-right movements that are obstructing aid from going to these refugees. You've got local populations who've kind of turned against uh, the refugees. You've got vulnerable people made more vulnerable by COVID in the streets. And you've got a Greek government that has moved to the right that is doing nothing and is probably tacitly you know, allowing this to happen. What needs to happen is the European Union needs to step up here and get this under some control and restore kind of a humane order to this uh, in, 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 in which, at a minimum, aid is able to reach refugees, kind of far right, and you know, mobs are not uh, harassing refugees, uh, and, and there's a return to order. And, and frankly, if the U.S. You know, it changes administration, you know, we get in this game, too, of yep. more systematically not only providing aid, but resettling people, some right. here, some in other European countries, uh, people who want to go home. Is there a way for them to safely get home? This is, a, 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 once again, a humanitarian catastrophe that's not getting as much attention because of COVID. Um, but it, a lot of intersecting trends are happening here, not just the refugee one, but the kind of far right piece of this, some of the exhaustion with this issue in Europe. Um, but there are human lives in the middle of this, and, and we, we can't lose sight of that. And these are innocent people who've done nothing wrong. Yeah, and, and it's lots of children. I mean, you know, you look yeah. at some of the images. It's just lots of little kids who have been demagogued by far right parties in the U.S., uh, and in Europe and called terrorists when in fact they are babies, uh, women and children and, and, you know, tiny little kids. So horrible situation. Um, we'll, we'll try to put some, uh, NGOs you could support in the show notes if people want to donate or time or money. Um, Let's talk about uh, our buddy John Bolton for a quick minute. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that federal prosecutors have issued grand jury subpoenas for uh, former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton's publisher and his literary agent, which means there is now a criminal investigation into Bolton's handling of classified information in his book. Uh, Bolton himself has reportedly not received a subpoena yet. Uh 
Ben, did you know that Bolton's book sold more than 780,000 copies in the first week? I had no idea. I'm very mad at everyone for buying that shitty-ass book. Can you buy my book, please? <laughs> so yeah, that's like, a, uh, I didn't sell them my copies. 780,000 copies. Can buy my book? Um, so basically, the White House is arguing that Bolton didn't do like the appropriate pre-publication uh, review for classified information before publishing that stupid book. Uh, Bolton says, yes, I did. I did appropriate revisions. The White House just sat on it because they wanted to bottle it up uh, because they knew the publication uh, would embarrass Trump. At a minimum, it seems like Bolton will lose the profits from this book. But this this criminal element is, is pretty ominous for him, Ben. This, that seems like a big deal. It's super ominous, and I'm no you know friend of John Bolton here, but um, is there any reporting or you know the book's out right? Like, what right, is the thing that was revealed that was what's the harm so damaging? Right, I, you know, like this if seven hundred eighty thousand people bought it, a lot of people read this book, and I have not seen a single news story suggesting that some source and method of U.S. intelligence collection was revealed here, right? So no. this has the feeling of complete bullshit. I mean, yeah, he, if, if he, and here's the thing, like you alluded to it, there's basically a playbook here where if somebody does ignore the process and someone does reveal stuff, you know, that, they're, that they don't get access to the profits, which is a way of, uh, I, I think, an appropriate way of, you know, making clear to, to anybody who works in the U.S. government that you can't just take all the secret knowledge you obtain because of your position and go profit off of it. But the idea of, like, starting to throw people in prison or prosecute their literary agents, you know, and let's face it, why is this happening? This is happening because it was critical of Trump. I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's no reason to believe that Trump cares that much about some piece of, of, of U.S., intelligence that might have been discussed in this in this book he was pissed off that it was critical of him and so it sets a dangerous precedent of of not approaching this through the lens of you know classification issues but but through the you know the lens of revenge against political opponents like like everything that's happening at the justice department now and, and for doj to be doing this that's different than like the white house to be fulminating about it that's you know that's the legal arm of the u.s government that's supposed to be independent of politics moving into that space yet again yeah, it's going to come down hard on him. Uh, this is, you know, retaliation, it seems. Uh, speaking of retaliation, Ben, uh, Politico reported that the U.S. intelligence community believes that the Iranian government is considering an assassination attempt against the U.S. ambassador to South Africa. So intelligence officials believe that this is like one of a range of options Iran has been considering as a retaliation for the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the former head uh, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, who Trump ordered killed by a U.S. drone strike back in January, I think. Uh, this ambassador, uh, a woman named Lana Mark, she's not some top military or intelligence official. She's a, a high-end handbag designer, a Mar-a-Lago member who I guess has been friends with Trump for like 20 years, and that's why he made her an ambassador. Um, there have also been reports that Iran wants to target the head of CENTCOM, although, you know, like taking out somebody who lives in Tampa and yeah, yeah, he, he travels with a bit of a, a military infrastructure that's going to harden that target. But you know, look, the good news here is Clearly, if we're reading about it, the U.S. Uh, intelligence community sniffed out this plot. They could take additional steps to keep her safe. Like, hopefully it won't be a problem. That said, Ben, we were told at the time that 
taking out Soleimani would deter future attacks uh, on U.S. interests. Uh, but also last week, the head of Central Command told NBC News that we have had more indirect fire attacks around and against our bases the first half of this year than we did the first half of last year. In other words, General Frank McKenzie said on the record that there are more attacks in the wake of the Soleimani assassination. This also comes as the U.S. is, is cutting uh, our force level in Iraq from a presence of 5,200 to 3,000 by the end of September as part of this broader effort, basically, to announce that he is ending every single war we're in uh, before the election, which, look, I can get behind as long as these guys come home. So, you know, kind of a wild uh, little update there for the uh, U.S. ambassador to South Africa. That would be scary. Yeah, Um Count me as dubious that we're ending all these wars. We're having photo ops about Yeah, them. me too. Me but too. I, I, I think, you know, first of all, we see that, uh, and, and look, this report, you know, I'd like to see it be corroborated, you know. Um, but I will say, you know, Iran has in the past acted in third countries. Yeah. You know, and so has Hezbollah. You know, there have been attacks in, in parts of Europe or parts of, in, in uh, Thailand. Um, so the idea... That, that Iran might seek to, to commit some act of violence in a third country as a reprisal for Soleimani is not that far-fetched. And frankly, again, you know, they, we, we said at the time that the, the responses to the Soleimani killing were going to come in many different fronts and over many different timelines. And we see here, you know, not only were those missiles fired into Iraq that ended up wounding 100 Americans, um, but, you know, you've seen further attacks in Iraq. You've seen Iran accelerate its nuclear program, obviously. Um, and, and there's the continued possibility of some form of active terrorism here. Um, I, I would I noticed Trump tweeting about this last night. I mean, it would also be nice if he would do something about the, the Russian bounties on U.S. service members mm. in, in Afghanistan if, if we're that? concerned yeah. about, you know. Um, but it's something to watch. And I think, you know, not knowing anything about the intelligence, that what may be the case is that Iran is exploring different options for how to respond, um, which is scary, you know, and, and part of the cycle of escalation uh, that has been so concerning over the last couple of years. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I'd rather not have entered into that cycle of escalation to begin with. Yeah, agreed. Uh, a couple more quick things. So, Japan will soon have a new prime minister. Uh, in August, Shinzo Abe resigned from the job uh, after many years because of health reasons. Now his longtime cabinet minister, Yoshihide Suga, is poised to take over. Uh, the New York Times described him as you know, the son of a farmer and a teacher who is, uh, quote, known more for expressionless recitations of policy than charisma. I mean, it's interesting because he comes from more humble roots. Uh, Abe was, I believe, like the grandson of a prime minister. He had this sort of a dynastic family. Um, you know, Ben, I'm sure like the various intelligence communities and the State Department are all working overtime to learn everything they can about this new guy. Uh, early reports suggest that there's likely to be a lot of continuity and continuation of Abe's policies. So just flagging this one, putting a pin in it. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, no, I, 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 what, how I interpret this is, you know, uh, Abe's dominated Japanese politics for, you know, the better part of a decade. His party dominant has dominated Japanese politics since the end of World War II. Yeah, this guy's every election except for four years. Exactly, since World War II. which overlap with the beginning of the Obama administration. And this guy is a transitional figure. I've met this guy. He he's you know kind of the the party guy, and and he's older than Abe was. And my sense is, 
you know, they, they have a lot of challenges. They've got COVID. They've got an economic uh, problem because of COVID. They've got China and North Korea that they're dealing with. And, and rather than have the you know, fight over who the next generation leader is for that party, let's go with the guy everybody knows, the kind of technocrat who can manage things for a period of time and, and then d- decide uh, who the leader is. You know? So I see this as just kind of a, as status quo and ante as Japan could have. It's worth remembering because it doesn't get enough attention. And, you know, we're part of that, too. How important Japan is, you know, for sure. This is still one of the biggest economies in the world. This is yeah. our biggest, you know, in terms of size, ally in East Asia. This is a country that invests enormous amounts of money in the international system, uh, enormous amounts of aid. Uh, any strategy that is smart uh, about China is going to have to incorporate Japan. So this is an important country and bears watching. Yeah, totally agree. So, Ben, uh, on, on September 11th, the Trump campaign released a new digital ad calling on everyone to support the troops. Um, it featured a, a photo that had the silhouette of these several soldiers as fighter jets flew over them. It was very dramatic. It was very patriotic. The problem, Ben, uh, the jets were Russian-made MiG-29s, and one of the soldiers was carrying a Russian-made Kalashnikov rifle. So Politico caught this little uh, uh, stock photo error and noted that you know the MiG-29 was developed to counter the American-made F-15 and F-16 and has been sold since to countries like North Korea, Syria, and Iran. So, Ben, I think we got them. Campaign over. Uh, no coming back from this one. <laughs> I mean, who vets these things? I mean, we vet everything so carefully. You know, I mean, it's so easy to like find good stock photos of U.S. service members of the U.S. military. It's like they're trolling us. You know, like we're gonna. I mean, how do you? Who's the guy who Googled planes and came up with some Russian MIGs? I mean, that makes you think of Top Gun. By the way, remember he sees the MIG. You know, um, yeah, gives him the bird. Yeah, gives, he flips him the bird. You know, uh, so come on, guys, just be better. You know. Yeah, be better. So one last thing before we get to interview with Mike McFall. We are now uh, have dealt with a week of, of Bob Woodward uh, related news cycles. Was there anything on foreign policy that really jumped out at you from the coverage? You know, there was the the notable uh, I saved his ass comment from Trump about Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But anything else really get your goat? Well, yeah, that did. But the other thing is, he you know went out of his way in his kind of autocrats uh, tribute section of the book. Um, you know, to, to praise Erdogan um, in very specific terms and talk about how well it gets on with him. I, I you know, it, it's not a coincidence to me that the autocrats that he talks about the most, right, you know, with the exception of Kim Jong-un, which is a great romance, of course, are MBS and Erdogan, you know, rich autocrats, corrupt autocrats, you know, and, and so the, the, the willful choice of them, he could have picked Bolsonaro, he could have picked Duterte, he could have picked any number of these guys. He seems to have a particular uh, desire to praise the most corrupt people. And if there is an accountability process, if, if Trump loses, God willing, and there's a look back effort here, I, I want to understand whether there are financial dealings happening, whether there's corruption we're not seeing. Because, yes, it's, it's jarring to see him praise these people. It, it's alarming to think that he may be doing so for, for, for financial reasons as well as political ones. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I noticed were, were two little Jared Kushner bites. So Jared Kushner is quoted uh, by Bob Woodward as saying, the most dangerous people around the president are overconfident idiots. Somehow, 
he is not talking about himself. He's talking about a bunch of four-star generals uh, and Gary Cohn, uh, who, you know, whatever you think of, at least uh, he ran Goldman Sachs. So he's some experience here. Um, uh, Kushner also uh, was, you know, a lot of people didn't like Kushner. And I guess Rex Tillerson said he found Kushner's warm dealings with Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu as nauseating to watch. It was stomach churning is the, is the quote in there. So I thought that was a, a fitting quote to close on uh, on this day where you have Bibi at the White House uh, getting a political uh, win and giving one back to, to Trump. Did you see that uh, Trump gave Bibi the key to the White House? Um, <laughs> yeah, like like that? mayors give the key. <laughs> what door? Yeah, well, it's like, you know, when like a team wins the World Series and the mayor gives them the key to the city, like that's an award that has never existed before. I mean, so the degree to which they're kind of sycophantic uh, mutually, uh, Bibi and Trump and Jared is the go-between is... Nauseating is a good good word for it. Uh, I can think of some other ones too. The key to the White House is so funny because it's like <laughs> yeah. way to take a thing that just signals like little like parochial small town mayor and just like slap yeah. it on the White House and think that's cool. I- I'm not sure that that plays the way he thinks it's playing. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with that, but I- I'm not going to... I know, I know. Okay, when we come back, we'll have our conversation with former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, I'm Akila Hughes. And I'm Gideon Resnick. We are the hosts of What a Day, Crooked Media's daily news podcast. Look, we understand keeping up with the flood of news every day is hard. There are updates on coronavirus, Disney reopenings, animal news. What else? So much else. But we're here to help you cut through all that. We break down the biggest news stories each day and help you understand what's important and what you can do about it, all in 20 minutes or less. New episodes of What a Day come out every morning, Monday through Friday at 4 a.m. Eastern on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You don't have to get up that early to listen though. <laughs> we are now joined by the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book from Cold War to Hot Peace, Mike McFall. Mike, it's great to see it. Great to see you guys again. This is very fun. This is like the good old days uh, in the in the bowels of the NSC before it was, you know, nonstop impeachment uh, things going on in there. So uh, I'll just kick it off. So, Mike, we got some good news this morning. Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption activist uh, Alexei Navalny is reportedly awake, alert, and he even posted a photo on his Instagram uh, despite being poisoned in late August by, uh, you know, a Russian nerve agent, presumably by some Russian actor. His photo caption said, quote, I was able to breathe on my own for the whole day. I liked it very much. An amazing underestimated process by many recommended. So he hasn't lost his sense of humor despite all that's happened to him. Uh, Mike, I know you know Navalny well. Can you tell listeners a little bit about him? And like, why do you think his enemies try to poison him again, I should say, uh, last month? Well, first of all, that was a great Instagram photo. I saw it too, with the, all his family, by the way, are all there, including our Stanford student, Dasha Navalny, who decided to 
be in Berlin for the first week of classes instead of here. Um, so Alex, say I, I've known of, about him for a long time. I want to make clear because I sometimes am, am accused and he is accused uh, that we somehow collude to foment revolution in Russia. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners will be surprised that as the U.S. ambassador to Russia, I never once met with Alexei Navalny in a formal meeting. Uh, we only bumped into each other at some dinner and we shook hands for seven seconds and 50 cameras took our photo. Uh, and, you know, he had a very principled position, which I deeply respect, which is that, uh, you know, I don't need your help, uh, Ambassador. Uh, this, is, this is my fight. Uh, this is our fight. Uh, the one request he had, and it's a request that another friend of mine had always made. Uh, his name was Boris Nemtsov. He was assassinated in 2015. Um, he always said, this is our fight. Just please don't help our enemies. Uh, don't aid the enemies. Uh, because Alexei, you know, for his entire career, has basically been focused on exposing corruption uh, by the regime in Russia, right? So that's how he's made himself famous not talking about liberalism versus democracy and, and, you know, these kind of abstract concepts from the 90s that a lot of other political opposition leaders talk about, and I do too, and, and we should, but basically to expose them uh, as stealing from Russians. And he's very savvy on uh, various technological platforms. He has amazing resources and sources within the Russian government, I believe, that help him expose this because I think that's important for people to remember, not everybody, even in the Russian government, supports Vladimir Putin, uh, and that's what makes him so dangerous. Uh, he's become extremely popular, uh, especially with the younger uh, people inside Russia. His movement has moved out of the big cities, so he has, he has followers all over the small cities and medium-sized cities across um, Russia, and in fact, when he was poisoned, he was out in Omsk, or Tomsk, uh, I forget which city, he landed in the other one of the two, uh, out to see some of the people that were running in local elections that were affiliated with him. Um, and I would say he's the most uh, uh, organized, principled uh, political uh, leader in Russia today. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned... Um uh, some of Navalny's travels right before he was poisoned. Uh, I believe he was traveling to campaign before some regional elections. So I was looking at some of those results. It seems like the opposition may have had some success in some of these elections, these local elections, uh, with, with what was called a, a smart voting strategy, where basically, you know, uh, you encourage people to align behind a single candidate, most likely to defeat the United Russia Party, Putin's party. Last month, you know, we saw some anti-Putin protests in the far east of Russia. Like when you look at those elections, those protests, what do you think the state of the opposition is in Russia these days? How powerful or not are they? Well, before I answer that question, I want to remind you, and actually I'll tell it through an anecdote that I remember talking to uh, President Obama about when we were in Russia. Um, when he was going in to meet Putin, the two numbers that drove Obama crazy dealing with Putin was one, how rich he was and one, how, how high his uh, approval ratings were, right? But as you guys know better than I, Obama's a very competitive guy. Uh, and he would look at that approval rating and he would say, come on, man, if I had all the television stations in my hand, uh, everybody in the U.S. Congress was loyal to me. Every rich person in America was loyal to me hell, I would be at 90%, right? So always remember that when you look at those opinion polls and always remember 
that uh, Russia is a very, uh, you know, uh, surveilled, surveilled place, probably one of the most surveilled places on the planet. So when, you know, Natasha out in Vladivostok gets a call from Volodya in Moscow saying, hey, I'm gonna, I work with an opinion poll firm and I just wanna know what's your attitude towards Vladimir Putin? Uh, and she knows who's listening to her phone. There's only one rational answer to that question, right. right? Right. And in academia, there's a lot of research on these falsified preferences in totalitarian regimes. Uh, so remember that context. And yet within that context, you're absolutely right, Tommy. There were uh, some really big breakthroughs. First in Khabarovsk that you just mentioned, uh, where uh, LDPR leader won, a Liberal Democratic Party of Russia leader won, not not liberal or democratic, right? This is a, a, a nationalist party. But the Navalny smart elections uh, strategy, like you described, decided to endorse him. He won the election. Um, Putin, in his autocratic ways, decided, I don't really like this guy, I'll remove him. And ever since, we've had, they've had protests out there every single Sunday for months now, uh, defying laws in a very dangerous way for the regime. They can't control those demonstrations out there. In a smaller way, uh, what's been happening in a larger way in Belarus has been constantly happening over the last two months. And then second, these regional elections, again, under all those conditions I just described, all the advantages to uh, Putin's party, United Russia, there were a few breakthrough cities where Navalny's people won, including one of the people that he was visiting on that plane ride uh, before he, uh, uh, while he was poisoned. So, um, that suggests that all is not well, that people don't support Putin uh, uh, to the degree that those public opinion polls uh, might suggest. So, Mike, you mentioned uh, Belarus, um, and we've just seen these extraordinary protests be sustained despite, you know, pretty at times brutal and arbitrary tech tactics by the uh, security forces. Lurking in the backdrop has been Russia, obviously, uh, the neighbor of Belarus, uh, and uh, Lukashenko, the, you know, the, the dictator, really, of, of Belarus, recently met with Putin in Sochi. And there's been this kind of concern of, of what would Russia do? Might they intervene? Might there even be something along the lines of a Ukraine situation? Um, the meeting was kind of interesting to watch because the body language was very much Lukashenko, the supplicant, kind of meeting the, the, the man on the throne and Putin kind of looking disinterested like the godfather. Taking notes and sweating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but out of it, you know, you saw some announcements. You know, Putin talked about a, a $1.5 billion loan. There were these kind of vague comments made about the prospects for, quote, promoting integration processes within the union state, you know, so some potential uh, blurring of the lines between Russia and Belarus. What do you think... Uh, the play is here. What do you think Lukashenko was asking Putin for? What do you think Putin is willing to do to prop up Lukashenko? And in the other direction, you know, how much might these protests in Belarus help further galvanize the Russian opposition? How do you see the, the interrelation between Russia and Belarus right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have any uh, ways to predict the future. Uh, we in political science are pretty bad at predicting revolutions. Uh, but I did spend five years in the government with you guys, and I would say the CIA is pretty bad at it too, just for the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but a couple of things. Let me start with the opposition and then talk about the autocrats. So first of all, for any listeners out there, if you have not been paying attention to Belarus, just go Google Belarus, hashtag Belarus, and be inspired. Um, the incredible 
uh, explosion of very peaceful elections every single weekend, mostly uh, almost exclusively led by women, by the way. The women are in charge here uh, and getting beaten. I think 500 people were arrested in Minsk yesterday, 800 across the country, and yet they have been defying that regime. Um, and just remember that when you're thinking about voting or not, by the way, you know, these are people are getting beaten, they're getting poisoned. Uh, just to have the, the right that all of us in America have. It, it's just shameful to me that some of my, uh, my uh, young people that I interact with here at Stanford are so, oh, you know, I'm not sure I can get, find enough time to vote in this election when I, I know these other people that are literally risking their lives to uh, have the right to vote. Um, the other thing I want to say, Ben, before I get to the autocrats, is, you know, in my world, and I think in, in, in policy worlds, there tends to be some stereotypes about people and nations and histories and cultures. Um, most certainly there's a, there's a hypothesis out there that, you know, the Russians, they love a strong hand and Putin is exactly what the Russians want. Um, and the Belarusians suffer even more from this, right? There's this notion that they're passive and that they, they've never risen up for 24 years against Lukashenko. And there's all this kind of uh, cultural determinism and whatever happens, uh, I think it's important to note that all that cultural determinism is undermined by these protests, right? And and uh, uh, the history, I think, is on the side of those fighting for democracy. We don't know when that comes, but the notion that these regimes are going to last for 20 or 30 years, I'm very skeptical about. Now, having said that, uh, um, in moments like this, uh, when I've written about it academically, it always matters, I call it the guys with the guns. Um, uh, what are the people with the guns doing? And so far, there have not been splits in Belarus uh, with the, they're called the Siliviki in Russian, uh, the hardliners, the, the, military, the military folks or the intelligence folks. But they also, you know, it's, you, can, you can arrest everybody if there's only 50 people on the square. You can arrest people if there's 500. You can't when there's 100,000, right? And so they're in a stalemate right now that they do not have enough physical force to suppress everybody. Uh, and, you know, Lukashenko seems very desperate today. He seems that's why he went in this very, you know, uh, um, I, that the body language says everything. And, and we've both seen how Putin loves the man spread. And, you know, he used to do that with Obama, too, by the way. Uh, he sits that way on purpose. Um, uh, but Lukashenko was basically going to beg. He even called him, I think, you know, our big brother. I think he used that phrase in Russian. I don't know how it was translated in English. And but Putin didn't didn't jump at it. He was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to help you. We're going to give you a billion and a half, but we got to work this out. So I don't think Lukashenko got uh, the strong signal that he was hoping for, and that suggests to me that there's going to be a pretty prolonged stalemate here. Um, you know, one of the theories kicking around, I was just on a call uh, yesterday with a bunch of folks in Belarus. Uh, their biggest worry, you know, is, is winter uh, and the snow and what happens to mobilization in that period. Uh, and I would not be surprised if this, this kind of goes on for a long time without a solution until the, the snow is the thing that comes to Lukashenko's aid. 
Yeah, no, and you're right to, again, we've been encouraging listeners to just check out what's going on, how courageous the people in Belarus are. And Navalny announcing he's going to go back to Russia right after he's poisoned. Uh, that guy's got more guts than, than I do, certainly. Um, the One follow-up question, though, is, you know, we're watching this and Trump has been silent on it. You know, in fact, when he was asked about Navalny, he pivoted off of it. Belarus, you know, leaving the statements and the actions to kind of the embassy. And I guess the question I wanted to ask, you know, because we could ask you the same question that, you know, we get asked all the time. What does Putin have on Trump? I, I want to ask you that. You know, Vindman, uh, who you know, yesterday offered his opinion that, you know, Trump is kind of a useful idiot for the Russians. But I mean, what I wanted to ask you is what difference could a U.S. president make? And, and perhaps there'll be a new U.S. president, uh, hopefully after the election. Um, what is our role here? Uh, this is obviously about the people of Belarus, the people of Russia. But what is Trump, what is he not doing that he should be doing? And and what difference does that make? If we had a different president, what would you be advising them to do about these protests in Belarus in particular or or about the Russian opposition? Well, uh, first of all, just to underscore, it's we've never had a president like Trump. I want to I want to make sure people understand that Democrats, Republicans, at least going back to you know World War II uh, through to our history, through Obama, uh, there's been variations as to what people have emphasized. But the United States of America has always been on the side of democracy and human rights and, and rule of law. Um, uh, I was just actually cleaning up uh, my photos for uh, a piece I'm writing today, Ben, uh, and I stumbled across a photo uh, with President Obama in July 2009 meeting with Russian opposition uh, leaders, including one with Boris Nemtsov. And I just sent it to Jana, just so you know, and, and was in touch with her this morning, his daughter. Um, because President Obama always met with human rights leaders and, and always engaged with them. Uh, my last event uh, as a U.S. government official with Barack Obama was the drive. You were there, Ben. Yeah, I was there, yeah. From the G20 summit, uh, we were driving to Air Force One, and we stopped at some Holiday Inn. Uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, was the only G20 leader that did that in Russia during that time. And he stopped to meet with human rights activists, mostly LGBT activists, if you remember, in Russia, uh, in St. Petersburg. And um, that's a tradition that, that Trump just doesn't do. I mean, I don't think he's ever met with a, a, a democracy activist from around the world. He never uses the word democracy, human rights, uh, or rule of law. And he's, you know, he, as he said to Woodward, but he said it on the record many, many times, he brags about like he's the I'm the guy that gets a you know like interacts with the autocrats right and he kind of wears that as a badge of courage or a, a something he's proud of and just realize what that does is that undermines people in these countries uh, because they are more uh, vulnerable and they think that they're not protected uh, and there's you know correlation is not causation but. Uh, there's reason to believe that if you're caring about democracy and human rights, maybe Navalny doesn't get poisoned. Maybe Khashoggi doesn't get killed uh, because you have a relationship with the White House and you have to think about that if they care about those things. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, we used to be the leader of the free world um, and we used to be the country that would coordinate a, a transatlantic or global response to these kinds of things. Uh, and now we're absent. And so, you know, now it's Angela Merkel uh, that leads that. But we would be stronger if we were all united. Um, and then number three, uh, there are a couple of concrete things you can do. Uh, number one, you can uh, interrupt 
U.S. companies that do business with the Belarusian dictatorship. Uh, we now know there's a couple of them that have sold uh, surve uh, surveillance equipment and um, uh, various ways to control the internet to, to Lukashenko. So this goes back to what Navalny used to say and what Nemsovna used to say, don't help us, just don't help our enemies. Um, and then fourth, there's sanctions. And, and I think, uh, what, you know, the, the specter of sanctions is important and, and people that abuse the human rights of others uh, don't have the right to go to Disneyland uh, and uh, should, should, should be sanctioned. Uh, but I think it's the bigger moral thing. I, I really do. I think that's the most important thing. Um, what What about Mike revealing their corruption? And revealing, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I, without question, uh, you know, this is what Navalny does so effectively. Uh, yeah. This is what we need to do as a country. Uh, uh, you know, there's lot. There's new legislation on this. Uh, our friend Jake Sullivan, as you know, he's written about this. Yeah. Uh, and I hope if there is a new president and and, and there's a new Biden administration that we will radically reform uh, the ability of all kinds of uh, creepy crawlers around the world to uh, you know, uh, park their money here. So they steal their money from their citizens and then they park it uh, here in Palo Alto in houses and companies in Delaware uh, in companies that we don't know. That's just gotta end. Yeah. Um, again, and if folks want like a, a primer on U.S.-Russia relations. Mike's book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, is just a, a fantastic place to turn to. It's lots of great stories from the Obama years, lots about the uh, frosty, maybe, relationship between uh, Obama and Putin. But, you know, Mike, like, let's all hope for one second, right, that Biden wins. What do you think needs to change uh, in terms of our approach to Russia? I mean, there's the, there's the obvious sort of obsequiousness and, and weird refusal by Trump to ever blame Putin for anything, whether it's, you know, the poisoning of Navalny or, you know, pick your million sort of bizarre times he has defended Putin. But like, what, what do you want to see from the Biden administration? Because Obama went in, like many other presidents had, uh, talking about resetting relations with the Russians that changed when there was a transition of power from Medvedev to Putin. But what do we do now that like Putin seems like he's going to be around for an awfully long time? You know, Tommy, tragically, I think we got to go back to some of the lessons of the Cold War. Uh, and I would say exactly the same thing with China right now, which is to um, contain where we must, uh, engage where we can. Uh, and when we do engagement, we engage the government, but we also engage societies. Uh, that's, that's the, you know, in a nutshell, that's the strategy, right? So uh, I'm really worried that we haven't done enough uh, to strengthen NATO in Europe, for instance. Uh, I'm worried about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you know, the best way, and Ben, this gets back to a point I wanted to make about your observation in Belarus. Uh, another thing that uh, democratic activists in Russia always tell me, uh, there's not much you can do for us, but the best way to scare Putin and to inspire Russians is to help Ukrainian Democrats and now to help Belarusian Democrats because that undermines the myth that Putin says that we need, auto, you know, because we're Slavic peoples, we need a strong autocratic hand. Um, and the Trump administration is, you know, instead of trying to help consolidate democracy in Ukraine, uh, he tried to uh, monetize uh, and help his election campaign through his relationship with President Zelensky. Uh, I'm really worried about what's happening in Ukraine, and I hope that uh, President Biden and his administration would re-engage there. 
and, and get serious about trying to consolidate uh, the, uh, democracy there. And then third, sanctions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sanctions fatigue in Europe right now. Uh, and I hope that uh, President Biden, I mean, I've traveled in Europe with uh, President, Vice President Biden, uh, Russia, Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine. We went to some pretty interesting places when I was in the government with him. Um, uh, he has a, a stellar reputation in Europe, and he has a really stellar reputation in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, 30,000 people came to his talk in Moldova. Uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty exciting. I think it was pretty exciting for him, too, by the way, uh, to have that many people cheering him. Um, and, and I hope that he will translate that uh, reputation uh, to help unify the, the, you know, the transatlantic relationship, but the democratic world, right? So that we uh, do not just begin to relax sanctions because of, you know, Hungary or Italy or, or fatigue, but that we only relax sanctions when Russia changes its position. And I actually believe that when you're in a stronger position uh, and you're, you're more united, that gives you more ability to actually negotiate on things that might be in America's national interest. So at the same time we're containing Russia, we also should engage with the Russian government, for instance, to, to extend the New START Treaty. Uh, that, would, that's, that is a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I worked with you guys in the Obama administration. Uh, I think I've only voted for one Republican in my life because he was a friend of mine and I knew he was going to lose. So I could always face him for the rest of my life to say I voted for you, Pat. Um, uh, but I think actually the early Reagan years, uh, and a guy named George Schultz, who was Secretary of State, uh, has explained it best in his uh, memoirs. By the way, Reagan and their administration did lots of things wrong. I want to be clear about that. If we were talking about South Africa, for instance, they were on the wrong side of history. But with respect to the Soviets, Schultz had this idea. We're going to engage with them when it's in our mutual interest. We're going to contain them when they are being belligerent. Uh, and, we, and while engaging, however, we're not going to check our values at the door. Uh, and I think that's, those are good lessons for how we deal with Russia and China, by the way, uh, moving forward. Very good lessons. And we know uh, Vice President Biden is an avid listener. So hopefully he's jotting this all down. Great. Maybe he uh, <laughs> maybe he brings you back into government. Uh, Mike McFall, thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, I think speak for Ben and I, uh, we miss working with you. It was one of the most fun parts of the job was was uh, sitting in your office and talking for hours about stuff like this. So great to hear you. Yeah, me too, Tommy. Me too, Ben. I miss those days, uh, but great to see you here today. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Mike McFall for joining us today. Ben, fly safe tomorrow. Yep, coming on tomorrow. Be back in the fire tomorrow. All right, man. We'll uh, bring a gas mask and maybe an air purifier from uh, New York if you can find one there, because they're all out over here. I'll, I'll ask Matt Gates uh, if yeah. you've got a gas mask, but the um, human frat paddle. But my wife, Anne, um, who's like just the best person you'd want to be in any survival situation, was somehow located in an air purifier. So Amazing. We, Amazing. We, we have one. We're trying. I guess I'll just um, you know, never leave the house again. So sounds good. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Posse the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. Posse the World is mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our amazing digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes videos every week.
For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life.